let's ask God to help us uh, with his truth. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, as we look again at this confession of our faith, uh, we do pray that we would understand it, uh, that we'd be convicted of its truth, uh, but more, we pray we would know the privilege of believing the truths we confess, more the privilege of being included amongst your people, your church, so that our hearts would be full of thankfulness to you, our gracious saving God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are continuing through the creed and last week we came to that line, we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And we looked at one and Catholic last week and today we look at holy. One word. And a word that we probably don't use often or have an intuitive understanding of in a culture that's been determined to deny public acknowledgement of God's being and greatness for some time. But it's actually one word that speaks of the great privilege of being and belonging to the church of our Lord Jesus, the privilege entirely undeserved of being welcome into the living God's presence as God's people, of being those who can live with God. Now, to understand that privilege... And also to understand how holy can be applied to local congregations like the Corinthians, whom you heard Paul call the temple of God holy, but who, as you read the letter, you see are far from holy in their life, tolerating open immorality and selfishness. Actually, to understand how holy can be applied to congregations like ours, where week by week we confess truthfully that we haven't loved God as we should or loved our neighbours as we should. Congregations like ours which collectively in our common life can from time to time depart from God's standards. So to understand the privilege and to understand how this term can then be applied to local congregations, we'll need to do a bit of work. Now I hope that doesn't put you off because anything worthwhile requires work. So, And this is really worthwhile and this is the work we've got to do. First, we have to think about our God and what it means that he has declared himself to be the holy God. As we do this, we'll understand why the church must be holy if we are to be God's church. And secondly, we'll need to remind ourselves of what this word of the creed expresses faith in. It's not in the holiness the church possesses by its own work or in its own right. This phrase is a confession of faith in Christ, in the finished work of Christ on the cross. It's only because in the words of Ephesians 5, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that the church can be called holy. Then thirdly, we'll try and unpack briefly the privilege of being the church that can be described as holy, the wonder of actually being included in that church so that we're actually excited and grateful to make this confession. And finally, we'll need to think about how confessing the church is holy guides our relationship with our own local congregation. The congregation that overlaps in membership with the church of God's elect 
the one Catholic church made up of God's people in all times and places. The congregation which is the expression of the same saving purpose that's brought that one holy Catholic and apostolic church into being. Because Paul, as we've already heard, is very clear that the local congregation should also be considered holy and that has consequences for the way we behave towards it. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. And we don't want to be that person. So one word, holy, but embodying much Christian truth. So firstly, what does it mean that God's word declares God to be the holy God? Now this is a really important point. So if you've never thought about it this much, this is something to really engage with and try and grasp. And I'm going to spend a bit of time on it. Now right from the beginning of God's relationship with his people, God has said he is the holy God. You shall be holy, he repeatedly says in Leviticus, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And as you heard in Isaiah, the angelic beings declare, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. His glory fills the whole earth. And the holiness of God is not just an Old Testament idea. At the beginning of the book of Revelation, the four living creatures who embody all created power and rule praise God, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Now that threefold repetition of the word holy is a way of saying that God is superlatively holy, incomparably holy, immeasurably holy, holy through and through, that you cannot think of the living creator God without thinking of him as holy in all he is. But what does that word holy mean? What does it actually describe? Well, at its heart, it speaks of God's apartness, how he's apart from us, his difference and distinction from all created being. And so this threefold repetition is actually saying that there is an infinite, that is without limit, qualitative distinction between God's being and our created being. So just think for a minute of the differences between God and us. When God is revealing his name to Moses in Exodus, he says, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God says his name is I am, that's his holy name. Now, I am is true of no created being. See, God here is saying that he has life in himself, is dependent on no one and nothing else for his being in either its origin or continuation. He's entirely sufficient in himself. I am. Whereas every creature is dependent on God for its life. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. God is saying that his being is without any limit external to himself. And that is so unlike us. God is not limited in time, in space, in wisdom, in might. 
And that lack of limitation is what we call his eternity, his omnipresence, his omniscience, his omnipotence or almightiness. And yet we are limited by all those things. We can only live in the present. (laughs) We can only live in one place. The future is unknown to us and our power is so limited as King Canute demonstrated. And God can't be acted on from outside to make him think or feel anything other than he wills to be or think or feel. And that again is so different from us. And God's holiness, in fact his declaration of holiness, is not on a spectrum as if we're a little holy in this sense and God is very holy. Now God's declaration of his holiness here is a denial that we and he can be measured on the same scale of being. And holiness is true of every aspect of his being, even things that we do share in. God's wisdom is holy. His might is holy. His justice is holy. His love is holy because it is his own, the love of the holy God. So, for example, his justice needs no advisers, and it knows no compromises. He is and will be just. His love in the eternal love of the Father, Son and the Spirit is pure. It never falters. It never knows or tolerates selfishness. It's never needy, never able to be bargained with, always other person-centred. God's declaration of his holiness and our experience of his holiness is his categorical denial of the lie the devil has planted in humanity's mind and to which our race is wed. You see, we in Adam have believed the lie that we could be like God and since that time we've wanted to believe that God is like us, just a bigger version of ourselves. And believing that, we also believe that, well, we can approach God by our own initiative and efforts, bargain with him as if he needed us, impress him with what we do, even storm heaven as the men of Babel thought, that collectively we could become even greater than him and drive him out of his creation. But God's holiness says all that is doomed to failure. He is not like us in his being. We remain finite creatures. He, the infinite, the unlimited creator. Oh, and and God's declaration of his holiness. He's saying to us he is not like our idols, the creation of human imagination and desire to whom we might like to compare God. Our projections of power and wisdom, those idols are dead and lifeless and powerless, the very opposite of the holy God, which was why idolatry is so offensive to him. God is holy and God's holiness means our sin, our disobedience to God, our believing lies about God is death. And that's not arbitrary. 
as if God has just decided he doesn't like sin, that, you know, he could choose to tolerate our sin, shrug his shoulders at it, but just chosen not to. No, God's holiness means our sin is death necessarily, for he is, and he is just and loving always. You see, there's no place in the universe where God is not. No part of his creation that's not sustained by him. No life not dependent on him. And who we are in our rebellion against God can't abide his holy presence. See, our sin, our rebellion is based on the lie that God will not do what he said, will not be who he has declared himself to be. But his holy word, like himself, is almighty and will prevail. Its sentence will be carried out. It cannot be otherwise. We creatures cannot turn his word aside. And God will never be anything other than he is, anything other than he has declared himself to be. And so in choosing to love ourselves rather than God by giving him thanks and obeying his word, our love has been corrupted, turning into selfishness, to the use and abuse of other creatures that we see all around us. But that corrupted love cannot continue in the presence of holy love. Oh, we justify and excuse our wrong actions, our breaking our word, our stealing from others, our sexual immorality. You know, we justify those things often as necessary to preserve our power or dignity or to give us life and pleasure or by claiming that we have the right to decide for ourselves what is right and wrong. But God's holy justice doesn't accept our rationalisations, doesn't accept the standards we set for ourselves and will always give our deeds what they deserve. God cannot cease to be just, and he cannot cease from ordering the universe by his justice. God is life, and our sin means we walk in death, and death has no place with the God who is. And so all our proud modern claims and the pride of our heart, you know those claims to be masters of our own lives, judges of our own actions, to be able to live without God, sustain our lives without God, all those founder on the rock of God's holiness. God's holiness is the denial of our lives and it's the expression of the incompatibility of God's being with the fruit of the big lie, with our selfishness, our pride and our embrace of untruth. So how can any creature approach the living God who is life? How can anyone live at peace with him, live in his presence? That's what Isaiah instinctively realises when he sees God in his temple. He sees God and he recoils. Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. You see, the mouth reveals the heart. If he has unclean lips, it's because his being at its core is unclean. 
unfit for God's presence. But what we also see in Isaiah is that the holy God can provide a way for the unclean, the unholy, to live with him through dealing with the guilt, through covering over, atoning for the offence of our sin. A coal is taken from the altar, that is the place of sacrifice where sin is atoned for. And the angel says to him, now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin atoned for. God provided the way. Trusting the Lord, receiving his provision, Isaiah and we can be cleansed, become holy in being separated from our sin, separated to God. But the Old Testament teaches us that it is only as God provides the way that we can be holy. Without his provision, there is no way. As creatures and as sinful creatures, we have no access of our own to the holy God because he's not an object to be discovered by us or an idea to be conceived by us. He is. And to approach him in any other way than the way he provides, the way he commands, is death, is woe. Now Israel, rescued by God from Egypt to be his holy people, had to learn this. And the provisions made for priesthood and tabernacle that you can read about in Leviticus and Numbers teach this. And where Israel would abide by them, faithfully use God's provision in his law, well, the people could live with God in their midst as his holy people, a people separated to him and cleansed by him, able to enjoy the blessings of being his people, of living at peace in the presence of the living God. But what we see from Israel's history is that acknowledging God's holiness by only coming to him in the way he provides is not something that comes naturally to us, to us or to the Israelites. And we see that and the lesson it brings in Leviticus 10. Let me read this to you. Uh, The priests, Aaron and his sons, have just been consecrated. And then it says this, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, each took his own firepan, put fire in it, placed incense on it and presented an authorised fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them to do. Seems so good, doesn't it? So religious, so kind of spiritual, taking the initiative to worship God. Well, let's see what happened. Then fire came from the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has spoken. I will demonstrate my holiness to those who are near me. And I'll reveal my glory before all the people. You see, coming to God, you might think this is tough. They seem so religious, right? But coming to God in any other way than the way he commands means we think we are equals with God, that his greatness is just a matter of degree and he somehow needs our attention and so we can initiate the relationship, deal with him on our terms when and where we want. And that's a denial of God's holiness and sin. And if that wrong idea were to take hold of the priesthood at the beginning, it would have spread throughout Israel. And they'd think that 
God ought to be pleased with the worship that they wanted to give him, not the worship he commands. And so it would enshrine the lie Adam believed, that we can be God's equals at the very heart of their life and they would have ceased to be the holy people of the holy God. We can only relate to the holy God in the way he provides, the way he reveals in his word. And that also means that fundamental to relating to the holy God is believing his word and conforming all our actions to it. And again, the history of Israel brings this home. So here's Numbers 20. In Numbers 20, we hear again of a time in the wilderness wanderings of the people of Israel when they became thirsty because they have no water and once again they complain about it to Moses. And the story continues. Moses and Aaron go from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of meeting. They fall face down. The glory of the Lord appears to them. And it says this, The Lord spoke to Moses, Take the staff and assemble the community. You and your brother Aaron are to speak to the rock while they watch, and it will yield its water. You'll bring water out of the rock for them. But God's very clear, isn't he? Speak to the rock. God is going to show his might and power by bringing water from the rock, actually display his holiness by bringing what is life-giving from what is dead, just by his word. Well, what happens? Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he had commanded him. Moses and Aaron summoned the assembly in front of the rock and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring water out of this rock for you? Then Moses raised his hand and struck the rock twice with his staff and abundant water gushed out. Now we can understand Moses' frustration. They're a very trying bunch. And you know, you kick the cat or you hit the rock, right? We can understand that. But his striking the rock actually leads the people to focus on Moses' action, not the Lord's words. Listen to what God says. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me to demonstrate my holiness in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this assembly into the land I have given them. Moses failed to obey. And the issue was unbelief. Because you did not trust me, because you did not believe in me to demonstrate my holiness. Think about the character of this unbelief. See, it's not just that we are choosing to not believe God. Now, when we are disbelieving his word, it's that we are choosing to believe ourselves rather than God, to trust our judgment, not his. And that's sin. And that's why all our unbelief, your unbelief, is an affront to his holiness because it claims we can be like him. Actually, no, it it claims we can be even better than him, that at times we are actually wiser than he is. We are more powerful and effective. We know better than him, better than the living creator, God. God is holy, immeasurably different from us in his being, Holy in all he is. 
which means in our creatureliness, our sin, our death, we can only relate to him, can only live in his presence as he provides a way. And we can only relate to him by faith in the way he reveals. And what we see in Israel's history is the way of the law doesn't work because our hearts are stubborn in our commitment to the lie that we can be like God and so we can treat him as if he's like us and worship him with idols. We're so stubborn that we can even use the law to think we can put the holy God in our debt by our obedience, earn his favour. And so the gift of the law to Israel only leads to their judgment, to them for failing to be God's holy people. And our, you know, our trying to put God in our debt by doing what we think is right, well, that only leads to judgment too. But when we confess that the church is holy, we're actually confessing our faith that God has provided a way for us to relate to the holy God, for us to become his holy people. And that way is Jesus. This confession that his one church, the church he builds as holy, highlights the greatness of the work of Christ, doing something we could never do. Our Lord Jesus sanctifies us. That is, he makes us holy, fit for the presence of God by offering himself for our sins on the cross. That's what the scriptures proclaim. We've seen it before in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy. And of course this is the climax of the argument of the book of Hebrews when Christ's work is in a sense compared to the work of the Old Testament high priests. There it says, by this will we have been sanctified, that is made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all time. And the author repeats that. Unlike those high priests who have to offer sacrifices year after year, Jesus only needs to do it once. For by one offering he's perfected forever those who are sanctified. And again, the book finishes reminding us Jesus also suffered outside the gate so that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. Our Lord Jesus, by his death, makes us holy in God's sight. And not just from the uncleanness of this sin or that sin, but from the uncleanness of all our sins, which is why he only needs to offer the sacrifice of himself once. And because he cleanses us from all our sin, this is not a holiness that is lost to believers the next time we sin. It is for all time. And that is the greatness and the wonder of what Jesus has done for us. There is an infinite sufficiency in the death of our Lord Jesus as the sacrifice offered by God for our sins. It covers over the offence of all our sin in God's sight. And in saving through the death of God the Son, God at the same time vindicates his holiness, his difference from all created being. He demonstrates that 
Well, he is I am who I am. That he is all that he says he is. He demonstrates that he's almighty and wise, far beyond human wisdom and might. And yes, he demonstrates that he is both just and loving, righteous and merciful at the same time. He's just in that he fulfills his word of judgment on sin, his word that can never be broken. Our sin deserves death, and what our sin deserves is paid in the death of our Lord Jesus as he dies in our place. And he, God incarnate as we confess him to be in the creed, is actually the only one who can substitute himself for us. Being man, he can die the death every one of us must die. Being God, he can rightly suffer the cost of God forgiving us by bearing in himself the sentence of God's law. Now let me unpack that and how it relates to God's holiness. You see, there is always a cost in forgiveness. Those of you who've had to forgive big things know that you've had to bear that cost in yourself. Only the one who forgives can bear that cost. And if it's not the one who forgives bearing the cost, if another steps in, say, and pays that cost, if we're, you know, thinking uh, with a commercial metaphor, if another steps in and pays the cost, then not exacting punishment is not forgiveness. It's actually strict, even grudging justice, because somebody else has paid the debt. Let me illustrate this. Say I have two sons, and one of them, let's call him the bad son, smashes up my car. Right? You may have been in this situation. Some of you, no, no, I won't go there. Yourself, I'm looking, looking for the, the people who are looking guilty at this moment. Right? But anyhow, let's say the bad son smashes up the car. Now, a good dad. But I can't say to the bad son who's involved in the collision, I can't say, I forgive you. You won't have to pay for the cost of repairs because I'm going to make your good brother pay for them. Now, because you're a bad bloke, you might think that's okay. But uh, that would not be just, would it, if I make the good brother pay for what the bad brother does. And even if the good brother, who is absurdly good, did then go and pay the accident, well, not making the brother involved in the collision pay, if I, you know, the dad doesn't make the brother involved in the collision pay, that's not forgiveness because there's nothing to forgive. Look, the damage I've received, restoration. But, you know, I can, as the dad, say to the son who wrecked the car, I forgive you. You won't have to pay for the cost of repairs because I will pay the cost myself. Now, if I do that, that's forgiveness, isn't it? I don't exact the punishment I could because I take the cost on myself. God, in the Father sending the Son and God the Son going to the cross, the Holy God, pays the cost in the death of Jesus. He justly forgives, while at the same time he fulfills his word of mercy, all those promises that he's made 
to the repentant that he will save them from death, that those who trust him will have new life. The holy God in saving through the death of his son is who he says he is, both just and righteous and at the same time gracious and compassionate to sinners, loving with a holy love, a love so different from our own that in his mercy he can say, my ways are not your ways, my thoughts, not your thoughts. And receiving with faith God's provision of his son in his death, relating to the holy God on his terms, revealed in his word, repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus. Believers in Jesus, his church, then enter into great privilege, the privilege of being God's holy people. Now I'm just going to summarise that privilege for you briefly now with three words. In a sense, these overlap, but it's kind of a way of ordering our privilege. And the first privilege of being God's holy church, his holy people, is inheritance. This is what Paul prays for us in Ephesians 1. I pray that God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, will give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now that inheritance is what God has promised his people in the Old Testament. Christ's holy people inherit all that God has promised his people in his word. And those promises are many and rich so great that without the work of the Spirit opening our eyes, we cannot start to grasp the greatness of this privilege. But you might want to think about that inheritance. Place to start might be Isaiah 11 or Ezekiel 37 or Isaiah 65 to 66. But as God's holy people, we have an eternal inheritance. And as God's holy people, we know God's protection. What stopped Paul from, in his words in Galatians, persecuting, seeking to destroy the church of God. It was the Lord Jesus appearing to him and saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The Lord Jesus is for his people. He is vigilant to care for them. And as you heard in 1 Corinthians 3, God's church matters to God. He is active to protect and defend it. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, an eternal inheritance, the protection of God. And finally, presence, which in a sense sums up all the others. As God's holy people, his holy congregation, his church knows his presence now, God's spirit in and amongst us collectively. And we have the promise of being able to live in his presence forever and and to give us a glimpse of the wonder of that privilege of what it will be to live as the holy people in the presence of the holy God let me just read you a few words from Revelation I saw a new heaven and earth uh, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away writes John and the sea was no more I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That is 
the church symbolised. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Now those words really need no commentary. You see, what we as those who know in this life, don't we? Death, grief, crying and pain. What we need to do is meditate on them until we feel the goodness of what will be. I mean, the same is true for that brief vision in Revelation 22, just one line for it. It says, The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. Can you think what it would be like to serve God with a pure heart, free of that struggle, no conflict of motives, no drop of self-love in our service, just love of our loving God. When you're confessing your faith in the one holy church, you are confessing both the greatness of Jesus' work and the extraordinary generosity of God to you in making you holy through the death of our Lord Jesus. And just as we become members of God's one holy church by receiving God's provision in the death of his son by faith in his word that reveals that provision to us, so we are called to walk by faith in our dealings with the local congregation, the faith that relates to the congregation as it is revealed to be in God's word. Now, there is, of course, heaps that could be said, but I just want to uh, reflect on just this verse that guides our relationship to our local congregation. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. And the word translated destroy there can also be, in a sense, this can also have the sense of corrupt and spoil. So as you're thinking about the guidance this verse gives to you to relate to what is loved by God, his church, there are in a sense four questions to ask. What destroys and what does the opposite? What builds up? What corrupts? What spoils the church? And what does the opposite? What maintains its purity? Now I'm going to give you the summary at least the answer to the first two questions. The summary, in a sense, that Paul directs us to in Corinthians. What destroys? Well, it's the selfishness and the thoughtlessness and the rudeness that accompany it that actually are demonstrated throughout Corinthians in their treatment of each other. What builds up? Well, chapter 13 is the climax of Paul's dealing with this divided church. Let me read what Paul says. After saying, if you don't have love, you're nothing. He says, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It is not boastful. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not irritable and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. 
Now, there's a lot there to think about. But you see, if you want to relate to the church as holy, as God's word reveals it to be, your local congregation, well, you should take those words home, read them and think. If your heart's set to please God, to walk by faith, ask, to whom in the church am I showing kindness and patience? The kindness and patience that doesn't just put up but includes and encourages. Oh, and you can also ask yourself, am I being self-seeking in my relationship to the local congregation, only being here for what I can get out of it, showing no interest in other people, even though they're people for whom Christ died, unless in a sense they are good for me? Am I irritable, frustrated? impatient in my dealings with others? Oh, am I allowing myself to carry resentments? Think about it. And if you find those things, repent and recognise that God wants you to build up his church and to do that you must love those whom God loves. Oh, and secondly, what corrupts? Well, it's actually false teaching, what maintains purity. It's the gospel. And we're going to think more about that next week. So there you go, holy. One word, but a lot to think about. The holiness of God, which we all have to grapple with. The effectiveness of Christ dying on the cross to deal with our sins, which we all must be convinced of and the enormous privilege of being by faith a member of the Holy Church, knowing our great inheritance, confident in God's care and protection, living now by the Spirit and in the future in risen bodies, in the presence of the wonderful, almighty, holy God. We believe in one holy, Catholic, apostolic church, That is a wonderful confession to make if you know you're included by faith in our Lord Jesus crucified in that one holy church. I hope you know that. I hope you can make the confession wholeheartedly and I hope as you make it, it reminds you that the congregation is his holy temple, God's people that he loves whom he wants you to give yourself to building up in love and faith. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, lots to think about, but we do pray that each of us would be gripped by your holiness so that we would turn from that sin in our heart that makes us think that we can relate to you on our own terms, that we are sometimes wiser or smarter than you, no better than you. Our Father, help us to be gripped by your holiness, to turn from that sin and to think of you and to come to you only as you tell us of yourself and your way of life in your word. Help us, trusting the Lord Jesus, to live amongst his sanctified people, now and forever we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.